Euzu billahi mineşşeytanirracim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi rabbil alemin. Vessalatu vesselamu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecmaîn. Assalamu aleykum brothers. Uh, thanks thanks for coming. Uh, um, thanks to anyone who might listen to this recording down the track. Uh, um, today uh, I figured we'd uh, have a discussion on uh, tawhid. Uh, so some of we'll look at some of Bedouzaman Said Nursi's um, uh, views on Tawhid, or some of his discussions on it. Um, you know, his view is just obviously the you know the uh, the Ahlus Sunnah view. Um, he talks about um, Tawhid all throughout the Risale Nur, right? So it's like in the original Ottoman Turkish, it's like some six thousand pages. Um, you know, at least four volumes of main books. Probably Tawhid is the main theme, you know, one of the main, if, yeah, I guess probably the main theme um, and its relationship to worship, right? Uh, so I could have picked lots of different spots to read from, um, but today I'll just pick some bits and pieces from his 22nd word, right? So the words here is the first of the four main books of the Risali Nur. Um, just to give you an idea of what it's about for anyone who's not familiar with it, like you can understand what it's about just from its cover. The words on the nature and purposes of man, life, and all things. Okay, so it's just a couple of words, you know, like I won't get bogged down. The Risale Nur, I'd say its main function is to make Allah known. Yeah, he wants to, Bedizaman is concerned to make Allah known um, so that he can be worshipped as he deserves to be worshipped. Um, and in doing that, of course, he defends the faith, you know, in various ways. Um, you know, he develops a certain um, sort, uh, a certain sort of argument or a certain set of arguments for Allah's existence, uh, Allah's unity, in particular. Uh, you know, Tawhid. Um, in general, what he's doing is he's delineating, he's drawing for us a path to Allah, right? A path to knowing Allah, to reaching Allah. Um, so, in short, that's what the Risale Nur is. Um, without further ado, I'll read just some little bits and pieces from this 22nd word and then, yeah, I'll just make some general comments about, um, about what he's written and um, about why Tawheed is so key, you know, for the worshipper in the first place. Um, yeah, why is it so key to uh, not just affirm Tawheed? Of course, you know, anyone who says La ilaha illallah has thereby affirmed Tawheed. You know, he has asserted the oneness of Allah, the unity of Allah. Um, but why do we, why and in what sense do we need to rather internalize this? You know, we need to internalize it. We need to um, live and act in accordance with that belief. Um, so yeah, I'll make some brief comments about that, inshallah. Yeah, and then I'll hand it over to you guys to, to um, yeah, to hopefully contribute as well. Um, so this is um, the twenty-second. Sorry, the second station of the 22nd word. Um, there are some um, verses from the Quran. Uh, I've got the um, Arabic here. Um, forgive my Arabic too. It's, uh, I'm not uh, a native Arabic speaker, so I'll do my best here. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahu khaliqu kulli shay'in wa huwa ala kulli shay'in wakil. Lahu maqali. Lahu مقالي السماوات والأرض فسبحان الذي بيده ملكوت 
كُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَإِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ وَإِنْ وَإِنْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِلَّا عِنْدَنَا خَزَائِنُ خَزَائِنُهُ وَمَا نُنَزِّلُهُ إِلَّا بِقَدَرٍ مَعْلُومٍ Okay, and he's got one more. مَا مِنْ دَابَّةٍ إِلَّا هُوَ آخِذٌ بِنَاصِيَتِهَا إِنَّ إِنَّ رَبِّي عَلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ okay. So, looking at the English translation now um, of, of the Risali Nur, uh, those verses are rendered in English as follows. In the name of Allah, the Merciful, the Compassionate, Allah is the creator of all things, and he is the guardian and disposer of all affairs. To him belong the keys of the heavens and the earth. So glory to him in whose hands is the sovereignty of all things, and to him will you all be brought back. And there is not a thing but its sources and treasuries inexhaustible are with us, but we only send down thereof in due and ascertainable measures. There is not a moving creature, but he has grasp of its forelock. Verily, it is my sustainer that is on a straight path. He says here by way of introduction, in my treatise entitled Qatra, which is about belief in Allah, the principal pole of the pillars of belief, I explained in brief the evidence and testimony to Almighty Allah's existence and unity made by all beings through 55 tongues, 55 different ways. Also, in the treatise called Nokta, point, right, Nokta, I mentioned four universal proofs out of the evidences of Almighty Allah's existence. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, sorry. No, I've lost my head. I mentioned, sorry, yeah, I mentioned four universal proofs out of the evidences of Almighty Allah's existence and unity, each of which is of the strength of a thousand proofs. Moreover, since I have discussed in around 12 of my Arabic treatises hundreds of decisive proofs showing Almighty Allah's necessary existence and, and unity, so his wajibul wujud and his unity, I shall be content with those and not now undertake any profound investigations. Only we shall try to show in this 22nd word 12 flashes from the sun of belief in Allah which I have written briefly in other places in the Risali Nur. Right. So in short, he's expounded this at length elsewhere. So this is just going to be very much in summary form. Just 12 flashes. Right? We'll only look at a couple of them. First flash. The affirmation of Tawhid, of divine unity, is of two sorts. For example, I'm going to give an analogy here, right? For example, if the goods of a rich man arrive in a market or a town, there are two ways in which it is known that they are his. One is briefly and simply, as with ordinary people, which is, in inverted commas, no one apart from him is capable of owning this vast amount of goods. Right, so that's one way. Yeah. But when under the supervision of a common man such as that, much of those goods may be stolen. Many others may claim ownership of parts of it. 
Uh, the second way is this. Through reading his writing on every packet, recognising his signature on every roll, and seeing his seal, or his stamp, on every bill, the man declares everything belongs to that person. In this way, in meaning, everything shows the important man. In exactly the same way, the affirmation of divine unity is of two sorts. Okay. One is the superficial and common affirmation of divine unity, which says, Almighty Allah is one. He has no partner or like. This universe is his. Okay. The second is the true affirmation of divine unity, right? which through seeing the stamp of his power, the seal of his dominicality, right, his rububiyya, and the inscriptions of his pen on everything, right? so to see all that, right? does what? It is to open a window directly onto his light, his nur, from everything, and to confirm and believe with almost a certainty of seeing it, that everything emerges from the hand of his power, and that in no way has he any partner or assistant in his Godhead, his uluhiyah, his Godhead, or in his rububiyah, his dominicality, right? Allah's administering the universe, right? or in his sovereignty. And thus to attain to a certain sort of perpetual, right? this is the key thing, a certain sort of perpetual awareness of the divine presence. We too, in this 22nd word, shall mention rays showing this pure and elevated true affirmation of divine unity. Okay. So, right. just briefly, like, you know, the first way is really what he's going to refer to elsewhere is as like a taklidi affirmation of divine unity. Right? Um, I teach, let's say, my little boy. Um, Allah is one and he doesn't have any partner and this whole universe is his. Okay, So he can understand that, let's say, and he can affirm that, he can repeat that, he can believe it indeed. Um, why does he believe it? Not because of any specific evidence from the world of things, um, rather on the authority of his father. Okay, uh, He trusts his dad, his dad's told him, so he accepts it. Um, that is quite taklidi, it's imitative, okay? And that's okay for a little kid. Um, but as um, a mature believer or a maturing believer, what's expected is not this taklidi, affirmation of divine unity, but a takiki, right? Takiki, a certain verified, certain in the epistemic sense, right? A certain, um, you know, an indubitable, a certain verified affirmation of divine unity. How's that? Well, he's going to say elsewhere, there are three sources, right? Three ways in which Allah makes himself known. Okay, um, He makes himself known, first of all, through his scriptures, through his books, through the Qur'an, for example. He makes himself known through the Prophet wasallam and, and other messengers. Okay, They tell us. They, for example, manifest miracles. Through those miracles, I mean, that's the function of miracles, right? The function of a miracle is to... Uh, confirm or verify the prophethood of the prophet manifesting the miracle so they manifest certain miracles everybody sees them right um then on that basis they accept what he says right so whatever allah whatever um our prophet peace be upon him tells us about allah 
we accept on the basis that hey, you know, we know that he's a prophet. Right? He's manifested these miracles. Um, so there's the Quran, which is a miracle in its own right. Then there, there is his prophet and his other prophets, peace be upon him. So two ways. But then thirdly, there's this other sort of book. The Kitab Kabir Kainat, the Ottoman Turkish, the great book of the universe, right? The great book of the universe, right? It's literally a book, but it's not a book. Um, like it's a book in one sense, metaphorically. Right? It's a metaphorical book in the sense that it doesn't have, you know, um, you know, binding and a cover and you know, um, you know, paper and ink in the sort. In the sense that you know, we understand the book. Um, but uh, in another sense, it's quite literally a book, right? Because what does a book do? It imparts meaning, right? Um, well, the hakika of every single thing in the universe is just that. The hakika, the reality of things, is to do what? It's to tell of Allah. It's to speak of its creator. Um, everything should be read in that way. Everything should be looked at in that way. Um, so... When we read the book of the universe, and we're going to see some examples in a moment, but when we read the book of the universe, we look at either the universe in its totality um, or the multiplicity of beings, you know, sets of beings, like, for example, the set of all human beings or the set of all living beings or the set of all particles or the set of all um, uh, celestial bodies, uh, you know, Either we look at things in that sense or we can look even at individual things, an individual human being, uh, an individual person, uh, uh, an individual particle or an individual atom. We look at these things and we, we're going to see how in different ways they are telling us of uh, the names and attributes of their creator. So the particular name and attribute that we're interested in here is um, you know, those names and attributes that look to his oneness. Okay. So, but this is what I'm going to say elsewhere. There are three particular names here that are relevant. Okay. Um, there's a name of Fard. Right? So to say that Allah is Fard is to say that he is both Ahad and Wahid. Right? It's a sort of umbrella name. It's a name that um, says that Allah has these two other names. Okay. Um, right? He's Ahad and Wahid. Uh, I'll come back in a moment and say, you know, what, what those names mean. I won't jump ahead too far. But, yeah, you know, we look at things, we see that they manifest wahidiyah and ahadiyah. They're in a sort of um, non-literal sense. They're speaking to us. They're saying, hey, yeah, my creator is one. He's a being of unity and he's a being of oneness. We read that and uh, now we know like, in a very certain and verified way, in a takiki way. Uh, not a taqlidi way, um, but based on evidence, right? Based on, yeah, literally going out and reading the evidence for it. Um, that is the way to uh, know, um, together with the other two ways too, like, you know, of course, you know, the hadith and the sunnah, um, you know, the Quran itself, um, together with those, but, you know, not neglecting also the book of the universe, through those we obtain this certain verified faith. Okay, so that's what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about, you know, hey, my parents or my imam or whoever, you know, told me. Uh, and on that basis, on that basis, I believe in Allah's oneness. No, no, we want to want to go for this takiki, uh, this takiki um, knowledge of Allah's uh, oneness and unity. Okay. A reminder within the first point. Okay. Oh, heedless worshipper of causes. Right. So someone who's esbab pedest, right? Someone who's, yeah, um, uh, uh, 
Asbab, like apparent causes, yeah, like uh, something looks like it's the cause of something else, but actually that thing's uh, impotent to cause that thing, really. So it's a cause only in um, a non-literal sense, you know. It just looks like a cause, but it's not. Now, the person who insists that those things are real causes, right, that person is Asbab Perest, right? He is a worshipper of causes. So Go ahead. Say I'm pretty sure, yeah. Let me have a look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Ottoman Turkish, it's a combination of yeah Arabic, Farsi, and and Turkish. Yeah, that's that's Ottoman. I'll double check. Uh, I'll just add it to this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, the internet here is a little bit slow. Right? Uh, okay. Yeah. E esbab pedeskafil. Yeah. Right. O u. Yeah. Worshipper of causes. Shukranbahit is translated as. Okay. O heedless worshipper of causes. Causes are a veil. For divine dignity and grandeur require them to be thus. But that which acts and performs matters, right, so the real cause, is the power of the eternally besought one. Right, so that Allah has summed. For divine unity and glory require it to be thus. And necessitate their independence. The officials of the pre-eternal monarch, right, being Allah, are not executives of the sovereignty of Rububiya. They don't have any real power of their own, in other words. They are rather the heralds of his sovereignty and the observers and superintendents of his Rububiya. And those officials and means are to make known, right, they exist to make known the dignity of Allah's power and the majesty of his rububiyyah, his dominicality. So that power should not be seen to be associating in base and lowly matters. Not like a human king, tainted by impotence and want, who therefore, therefore takes officials as partners. That is to say, causes have been placed so that the dignity of power may be preserved in the superficial view of the mind. For like the two faces of a mirror, Everything has a face that looks to the to this manifest world, which resembles the mirror's coloured face, and maybe the means to various colours and states. And everything also has a face that looks to its maker, to Allah, which resembles the mirror's shining face. In the apparent face that looks to the manifest world, there may be states incompatible with the dignity and perfection of the eternally besought one's power, and causes have been put to be both the source and the means of those states. But in respect of reality and the face that looks to their creator, everything is transparent and beautiful. It is fitting that power should itself be associated with it. It is not incompatible with its dignity. Therefore, causes are purely apparent and in reality have no true effect. Okay, he's going to give an example of all that. So the, the English translation is often um, you know, hard. Um, yeah, it's tough uh, to... to to understand at times, but it's going to give an example now of that, which hopefully will clarify things. Right. A further wisdom in apparent causes is this. Causes have been put as the aim so that unjust complaints and baseless objections should not be directed at the absolutely just one. Right. Allah has adl. For the faults arise from them, from their incapacity and lack of ability. A comparison is narrated, which is in the form of a subtle example illustrating this mystery. The angel Ezrael, peace be upon him, said to Almighty Allah, Your servants will complain about me 
while I am carrying out my duty of taking possession of the Rus, of the spirits of the dying, they will be resentful towards me. So Almighty Allah said to him with the tongue of wisdom, I shall leave the veil of disasters and illnesses between you and my servants so that the complaints will be directed at them and they will not be indignant at you. Okay. So see, illnesses are a veil. What are imagined to be the bad things at the appointed hour right, are attributed to them. And what is in reality the good things in the spirits of the dying being seized Right, that part of it, that is attributed to the duty of Israel upon whom be peace. And so too, Israel is a veil. He is an observer of that duty and a veil to divine power. So that certain states in the taking of spirits, which are apparently unkind and which are inappropriate, and which are inappropriate to the perfection of mercy, right, are instead attributed to him. Yes, dignity and grandeur demand the causes are a veil to the hand of power in the view of the mind, while divine unity and glory demand that causes withdraw their hands from the true effect. Okay. Um, say a couple of words about that. I know that how um, how much the message got across there. You know, um, so like he's saying there, like like first of all, he's telling us the causes. Right? They don't have any real power. Okay. Um, like here's the thing. Like to attribute things to. Uh, Causes, right? Physical causes, right? Whether um, physical law, whether uh, entities like you know nature, you know imaginary things like nature, mother nature, um, uh, yeah, like you know physical forces, uh, or even the particles that carry those physical forces. To attribute things uh, to them is the very opposite of the affirmation of divine unity, right? It is the complete opposite of that. Um, so the person who fails to properly um, both to affirm and to, you know, uh, inculcate, inculcate in themselves, like to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, to uh, internalise, you know, the person who fails to internalise and live in accordance with Tawhid um, has, to the extent that he is going to explain things in the universe, right? I mean, some people might not bother with trying to explain things. Some people might not care. They might just say, hey, you know, my job here is to enjoy pleasures and I don't care what is the cause of this or that. Um, but to the extent that we do, sometimes attribute things to causes, all right? Um, we wonder about, let's say, the cause of the universe or the cause of, um, you know, the clouds or the cause of the planets or the cause of, um, you know, my bodily systems and things like that. To the extent that we do that, right, um, if I don't attribute things to Allah, then I'm either going to attribute them to um, something in nature, right, some something um, other than Allah, right. Uh, yeah, like I said, you know, forces, laws, um, Mother Nature, uh, or if I don't attribute them to things like that, I'm going to attribute them to myself, myself or other human beings, you know. Um, so yeah. Something other than Allah. Now, he's telling us straight away that all of those things are impotent. Right? Not one of those things. We're going to, as we talk more, we'll see why. But all of those things are impotent to give rise to the effects that they appear to give rise to. Right? So they come before certain effects. And we make the mistake of thinking that because they come before those effects, that they must be the cause of them. Okay? Which, as even Hume pointed out, is just fallacious reasoning. Um, Okay, so that's the first thing. But now, here's the thing, like, 
why would Allah set up the, the world in that way in the first place? You know? uh, especially given that he's not created us for any reason other than worship. Right? Uh, you know, he's saying that we've been created to worship him. Um, to worship him, we really do need to be able to see that uh, the artifacts in the world, the things in the world, the phenomena in the world are be uh, caused by Allah. If that's all true, then why set up these apparent causes? Well, he's giving us one of the reasons here. Okay. Um, like, I mean, of course, certain reasons are obvious. Like, first of all, like, we're in a testing realm, aren't we? Um, we're, yeah, you know, we're in a realm where it really does need to be, um, like, you do need to be given some wriggle room, some ability, you know, uh, for your free will to operate freely. Right? Like, I mean, if Allah were to, let's say, fully manifest himself right, in every occurrence, right, in every event, if you were to hear his voice, for example, um, then uh, the you know the whole point in creating a realm in which you're going to be examined um, is gone, is lost, right? Um, because then, under circumstances like that, you even if you've got free will, it, you can't really use it. Right? It's like trying to like it's like being a criminal and trying to commit a crime, despite the fact that the policeman's you know right next to you. Okay, um, you need to be free to um, to choose, right? Your choices need to be free. So part of the reason, of course, is that. But he's pointing here to you know another subtlety, another sort of reason, and it pertains to the dignity, right? The grandeur and the dignity of Allah. Okay. So what happens is that someone gets sick. You know, let's say a little child gets sick, hasn't yet committed a, a single sin. Child gets sick and is in agony, let's say. So, so that um, people who don't know certain mysteries, like, I mean, we spoke last week uh, about, you know, part of the reason why, like some of the reasons why Allah um, causes us to undergo difficulty, right? right? We spoke of a whole set of ways in which difficulty is actually to be, um, you know, um, grateful for, okay, sickness, musibah, <coughs> Sorry, apparent musibahs of all sorts, they're actually, Bajrman says, you know, we should be grateful for them because they're the things that bring us closer to Allah. They're the things that enable us to know Allah in ways that would not have otherwise been possible. Um, you know, so that actually they're an infinite good. You know, they're an absolute good. But for the person who doesn't understand this sort of stuff, okay, um, that kind of person right, uh, is bound to accuse Allah right, of a lack of mercy, and so on, right? They're yeah, they're bound to accuse Allah's, um, uh, you know, the, the qadr that He's uh, written for us, uh, you know, His mercy, His wisdom, and so on and so on. So what Allah does is He sets up things like you know illness and so on, right? Um, yeah, you know, illness and musibah of all different kinds, and so the person who's yeah, it would have otherwise accused Allah's mercy. Uh, instead, says, "Oh, well, you know, yeah, mm, you know, my father died of cancer, or my child is in agony because of um, the cancer, or you know, the whatever, you know, because the snake bit him, or whatever." Okay? So, apparent causes um, play that role. Right? They, in a sense, protect divine dignity for, for for those who don't quite understand Allah's infinite dignity. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's that little bit there. Um, I'll pick some another one or two little bits to read, and then um, I'll leave the reading there. Okay.
Okay. So this is the second flash, right? Look at this garden of the universe, this orchid of the earth. Look carefully at the beautiful face of the heavens gilded with stars. You will see that on each of the artifacts spread out and scattered over them is a stamp particular to the creator of all things. And on each creature a seal special to the maker of all things. And on all the levels of beings, written on the pages of the night and day, summer and winter, each published by the pen of power, are inimitable, illustrious signatures of an all-glorious maker, an all-beauteous creator. We shall now mention a few of those stamps, seals and signatures by way of example. For example, of the innumerable stamps, consider this stamp out of many placed on right, the phenomenon that is life, right, life. He makes everything out of one thing and makes one thing out of everything. For he makes the innumerable members and systems of animals out of a fluid and also out of simple water which is drunk. Thus, to make one thing, everything, is surely the work of one possessing absolute power. And one who transforms with perfect order numerous substances from the uncountable foods that are eaten, whether plant or animal, into a particular body, and weaves from them a particular skin, and makes from them simple members, is surely one powerful over all things, and one knowing of all things. Indeed, the creator of life and death, Allah has muhi and mumid, the creator of life and death, administers life through his wisdom in this workshop of the world through such a miraculous commanding law that to carry out that law and enforce it is particular to the one, with a capital O, to the one who holds in the grasp of his power the whole universe. Thus, if your mind is not extinguished and your heart not blind, you will understand that what makes one thing with perfect ease and order and makes everything one thing in skillful fashion with perfect balance and order. Right, so the doing of that acts as a stamp particular to the maker of everything and a seal special to the creator of all things. For example, if you see that together with weaving a hundred rolls of broadcloth and various other cloths like silk or I think it's pronounced cambric, from one ounce of cotton. A wonder worker also makes many foods from it, like halwa and pastries, like baklava. Then you see that he takes a handful of iron and stone, honey and butter, water and earth, and makes some fine gold. Of course, you would certainly pronounce that person to possess such art that all the elements of the earth are subjugated to his command, and all the substances of the earth look to his word. Indeed, the manifestation of power and wisdom in life is a thousand times more wondrous than that analogy and that example. Thus, one stamp on life out of many. Okay. So he continues in that way. Right? He's got a total of 12 of these, right? Um, so I'm going to leave it to you guys, like whoever wants to, you know... Um, 
gain a uh, you know a, a fuller um, understanding of like what Bedizamans of the point that Bedizamans getting across here. I'll leave it to you. Um, so this is the again the second station of the twenty second word, um, which you can access freely on irisale.com and or just by Google search. Um, yeah, you know you can just access the words. Um, you can definitely, I definitely encourage you to sort of read the rest of this yourself, right? So read the first couple of flashes. It's got 12 there, 12 different ways in which right, we can do that thing that I spoke about at the start, right? Like, you know, we want to try again to obtain that, you know, takiki, right? that certain verified faith in Allah's unity, okay? So he gave us there a couple of examples, right? Um, Let's go back. Let's just rewind a little bit, right? What do we mean by these names of Faradan, Ahad, and Wahid, right? Let's understand that first, okay? So remember, I said that to say that Allah is Farad is to say that He is Ahad and Wahid. Right? So traditionally, our scholars have understood Allah's Ahadiyah, right? He's being Al Ahad, to mean that He is one, okay? So one, as opposed to a being of unity, right? So oneness is distinguished from unity, right? Two different concepts. Right? To say that Allah is one is like this, like, you know, don't we sometimes, um, like, when I want to pick out a certain individual, I want to speak of a certain individual, right? Out of all the persons, right, I want to speak about a certain person, let's say. Um, often I refer to him as the one in English, right? You know, like I might say, you know, hey, do you know Shabir? You know the one, right? Right. So that sense of one, right? one referring there to a unique individual. Okay. Uh, Ehad looks to that, right? Ehad said, tells us that Allah is one right? in the sense that no other being has his essence, his Allah. Right? Um, there aren't, um, like what this does is it totally, um, uh, it refutes all notions of like, um, you know, there being a trinity of, of gods, for example, you know, um, you know, three persons in the one Godhead and, you know, notions like that. Like, to say that Allah is Ahad is in part to say that Allah is one in the most absolute sense of the word, right? He is unique in the most absolute sense of the word. Um, so contrast that with us. Right? Um, I, sure, I'm a unique individual in my own right, like as in there aren't two Turhans, right? I'm the only Turhan. Um, but... Like, look at my zat, look at my essence, right? What am I? I'm a ruh, like we discussed that last week, okay? I'm a ruh, but, you know, everybody here has a ruh, okay? There are lots of ruhs. Allah is not like that, right? Um, his essence, right? whatever that unknowable essence is, right? What we do, what we know about that essence is, it's like, oh, well, we don't know it's um, mahir. We don't know it's, you know, we don't, um, yeah, we can't say what it is. Um, but we know what um, attributes it has, right? We know what it isn't. We know what names right, that being has. We know what attributes he has. Um, so we know this about him. He's unique in the most absolute sense of the word. There are no other beings like him. There is no one else that shares his odaat. No one else that shares his essence. Um, so that, that's Ahad. Right? And what he does is that he manifests that particular attribute, that particular name. He manifests it in the universe in a certain way. Um, and I'll come to how in a moment. But before I, I talk about that, let's talk about his name, Wahid. Right? Um, to say that he is Wahid is to say that he is a being of unity. Right? That's to say that it's also to say that he is one, um, but it's to say that not that he is one as opposed to all others, but rather to say that he is one as opposed to more than one. Right? So it's kind of one in the more numerical sense. Right? 
there aren't yeah there aren't um lots of gods right there aren't there aren't a multiplicity of beings right? so again our scholars have said that right this kind of looks to the unity of his names and attributes right um there aren't other beings that have for example absolute power there aren't other beings who are like for example uh you know that that you could name el wadud right there aren't other beings with absolute love absolute mercy you know infinite power right uh infinite wealth and so on and so on all of the names and attributes that Allah has, only He has them. Okay. So again, Ahad says that only He has the essence that He has. Wahid says that only He has the names and attributes that He has. Okay. Uh, so He's one in both those senses. And just as He makes His uh, His oneness, His Ahadiyya known in the universe, so too He makes His Wahidiyya, His unity known in the universe. Right. So how does He do both of those? Okay. He, know, he makes his ahadiyya known like this. Um, so he takes a certain individual, and it could be anything, right? It could be um, this, this. What I'm about to say is true of every single thing that Allah has created. Okay. Um, so I'll just make sure my recording is still going. Yeah. This is true of the the most fundamental particle. It's true of the quark and the electron, and it's true of the human being, right? You know, the more complex entity. What Allah does is that He takes that entity, you know, uh, He creates it, right? So straight away there, He manifests His name of, let's say, Khalik, right? No. And then He manifests other names, like he, he manifests a variety of names and attributes in that thing. Names and attributes that are particular to Him. So that when you look at that thing, right, um, you know that, right, just by looking at the names and attributes that are particular to Allah, right, just by seeing them manifested in that thing, you know it's going to be um, an artifact of Allah's. Assalamu alaikum Good to see you, man. Come on in. <laughs> right. So, right, like, I mean, here's an example, right? Uh, here, I mean, here, right, let me show you something, okay? Right. Does anyone know who makes these? Who makes this? What company makes these? Apple, right? Um, how do we know that this is from Apple? Right? I mean, what are they? What are these? These are earphones. I mean, lots of companies make earphones. But... There are certain attributes that this has, right, that makes it such that we know that it cannot be from any other company other than Apple, right? Um, they have a particular form, a particular shape, okay, um, that other, you know, earpods don't. Um, they have, moreover, what they have, they have certain qualities, like the noise cancellation on these is superior to other earphones, let's pretend, right? You know, and that's probably true. Um, Probably it's more expensive than any other earphone, right? Okay. Um, and so on and so on. It has a variety of attributes that are particular to Apple. So that when you see those attributes manifested in this thing, you know that's going to be from Apple, right? Here's another example. Okay. Like, look, uh, here, I can confidently say, I hope, right, that in this room, there are no other data scientists other than Taha. Are there other data? I hope there aren't. Are there other data scientists here other than Taha? There aren't. Okay, good. Good. All right. So let's pretend now, you know, we come into this room, we just walked in, right, and here's a certain artifact, right? Um, now, you know, it's, um, it manifests a certain artistry, it's been made out of certain very valuable um, 
um, elements, you know, like it's been made out of a platinum and a titanium and a gold. And, um, and uh, you open it up and, you know, you see it's this electronic device. Um, and then when you look at it more closely, you see that it has certain software. Um, and that software, it can, what it can do, it can analyse data, right? It can analyse data in certain ways. Now, this has been left here, let's say, as a gift, right? It's been um, um, wrapped. It's been wrapped. It's been gift wrapped and there's a ribbon on it, okay? Um, and even when you look closely, um, you know, maybe there's like a little note on it, right, that says on there, Taha, okay? Um, so now, when we look at this thing, right, even if his name wasn't written on it, out of this group here, right, we can all confidently say that that gift has been left for me by Taha. Why? Because only he has that attribute, right? The attribute of being a data scientist or the ability to um, engage in whatever it is that a data scientist does, right? The analysis of data and so on, right? Only he can do that, right? Can anybody else do it? Nobody else can, right? So we know, ah, it had to be him. Okay, well, take any, uh, I'll keep it simple, um, right? Uh, let's pretend, right? Here, here's a quark, okay? Here's a quark, let's say. Just pretend it has no parts, this thing. Here's a quark. Now, what does it take to create this? Um, here, try to create... I challenge anyone, past, present, or even future, to create this quark, okay? Um, now, you can't... Um, you've got to create it all by yourself, all by yourself, using only your own resources, let's pretend, yeah? Um, Right. What would that take? That would take infinite power. Why? Because um, you can't use anything pre-existing in the universe. No, no, they will, they will belong to Allah. Right. Create your own particles. Right. Try to do that For using no pre-existing material. Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, you'd need to be able to account for your own existence and abilities and so on. I'm setting all that aside, right? I'm, I'm granting to your existence and your ability to create, right? Try to create this quark, right, yourself. That is going to require infinite power. All right. To take to from using using no pre-existing materials, right? To create something out of nothing, right? In a relevant sense of the word, to create something out of nothing that requires infinite power. It requires not just power, but infinite power. Um, now it has a certain, you know, a certain form, a certain artistry, right? Um, manifests certain attributes, right? All of those attributes they belong to Allah. They cannot be, like, can this quark, can it explain itself? How can it explain itself when there was a time when it didn't exist? Right? It comes into existence with the attributes that it has, doesn't it? Right? Yeah? So think of that, like, if anyone studied, you know, a little bit of, you know, seen online, a little bit of Big Bang cosmology, right? Um, our best science tells us that, you know, what was there first? First there was space, right? There was nothing, right? There wasn't even space. Then space comes to exist. And then um, a certain period of time later, um, don't ask me how long, a certain period of time later, right, um, in the expansion of that space, what happens is that, you know, fundamental particles are created. Okay. So these particles, these fundamental quarks and electrons and whatever, they began to exist. And when they came into existence, they had whatever attributes it is that, they have, right? Um, they had whatever shape and whatever form and, you know, whatever mass, um, whatever um, abilities to interact with other quarks and so on. Whatever they have, they were given at the moment of their creation. They can't account for it themselves. That, that, that would be like saying, here's a newborn child 
and saying that that child can account for its own, for the brownness of its eyes and the brownness of its hair um, and for its um, bodily organs, its ability to digest its mother's milk and so on. It would be as ridiculous as saying, yeah, it's thanks to that child that it can do all of that or have all of that. Okay. Um, so through its tongue of impotence, right, through its lisan hal, right, just through its... Um, tongue of disposition, right? Just through the way that it is, in other words, right? Using the tongue of the way that it is, it's telling us something. It's saying, hey, I can't account for my own existence. Um, like, first of all, I didn't have to exist, right? I came, like, I, I didn't have to exist. How do we know that? Because I haven't always existed, right? Says Mr. Quark. I haven't always existed. Now, the only way to account for that, first of all, is to point to a being who isn't also like that, right? Uh, isn't that the case, right? Um, Imagine that we try to attribute the existence of this thing to another thing like it that um, also uh, couldn't explain its own existence, came into existence at a certain point in time. Right? Um, obviously, it can't explain it either. The only way to explain this thing is by pointing to something that doesn't have those same deficiencies, those same limitations. Right? The only way to point to this thing right, uh, is to point to something that has always existed. Yeah? Something that has always existed, that can't fail to exist. In other words, that has the attribute of um, being wajib, wajib al-wujud, has necessary existence. Please go. Um, so I guess, could you have a bit of skepticism towards this? Maybe sure. I can offer like an analogy. Sure, sure. So, for example, there's a, a crater, right, and there's yep. water in it, and some, and you're the water, and you want to see how this crater fits me so well, fits me so perfectly, so much that's made for me. The crater? Yeah, maybe like a okay. arbitrary Sure, sure, sure. And the question is, was the perhaps the crater created to fit the water perfectly, or was it the water that could fit the crater? Sure, Such sure. That, so I guess the parallel is, yep. do things have properties because they are created with those properties, or was it a process of adapting to the environment that allows them to have those? Uh, sure, adaptations? okay. So... I'm talking about the, th the attributes that a thing has at the initial moment of creation. Right? So it comes into existence, doesn't it, like with a certain the form that it has, right? I mean, it's a fundamental particle, right? Um, it, it doesn't, like, grow bigger, does it? You know, as, I mean, as far as we know, right? It doesn't grow bigger. Um, uh, yeah, it doesn't... Um, to say that it's fundamental is just to say that it doesn't have any parts, it doesn't disintegrate, you know. Um, yeah, it just is what it is, okay. Um, so, yeah, just like considering... And, and then, like, let's say that later it does do certain things after the moment of its creation, right? Um, uh, how does it do those things? Well, it has, needs, the, needs to be able to um, interact, right? It needs to be able to basically move. I mean, think about it in the most basic sense of the word. Like, the fundamental things of this universe, like, what are they, right? Physical stuff, like particles, right? Um, and space, right? And then the motions and changes of those things. That's all you've got. In, this, in the physical universe, that's all you have, okay? Um, for anything to happen, um, what has to happen is that, yeah, one of these things has to... So either space or the physical things in space, they have to move, right? Um, so how is it that these things move? So now you can describe that motion using whatever more complex language you like, but at bottom, that's what's happening. Things are either moving or changing, um, and I guess you could say they're interacting. 
I, I mean, I guess that's a more, you know, um, higher level sort of description. But yeah, at bottom, things are moving. Like, how is it that you get, for example, a proton or a neutron? Yeah, three quarks uh, come together. Right? So now, can the quark, here's the question, can the quark explain itself why it is that it's able to even, um, uh, first of all, exist, but then secondly, to move? Like, I can, like, so I'm not talking about, Sure, you might point to, you know, certain laws and regularities of the universe, but, you know, they're only uh, contingent phenomena. They didn't have to be the case. Like, metaphysically speaking, I can imagine another universe where um, a quark exists and it doesn't move at all, right? There's no uh, logical absurdity in that, is there? Okay? So, therefore, if this thing began to exist at a certain point in time and it can move, right, it can do a single thing. It can move, right, just a nanometer right that needs to be explained okay. now the only way out of that is to say oh well you know maybe things don't need an explanation i mean that's a whole nother argument you know we can talk about that separately but you know uh assuming for the moment that things need an explanation um that thing it cannot itself provide that explanation because when it comes into existence um yeah it has that ability like i mean that's just what a quark does right it moves in certain ways that's what a quark is right we give the name quark to the thing that moves in those ways um what we want to know is why is it that a particle can move any particle why can it move um, that's the problem right uh so if we cannot explain how, why it is that a particle manages to exist in the first place right, and why it is that particles can move in space right, why can they move if we can't explain any of that then guess what nothing else in the universe can be explained because everything else is just really a product of that. Whatever, whatever other phenomenon there is in the universe is ultimately going to boil down to um, something physical and the motions or the changes of those physical things. So that's the problem. That's what, that, that's what needs to be explained. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if that clarifies it for you or if there... We'll talk more about it later. Yeah, we can. We can. Yeah, um, we can come back. We can come back and yeah, uh, you know, try to clarify more uh, later. But you know, the point for for the time being, what I'm trying to get across is just this. Yeah, uh, you know, from Bedouzaman's what Bedouzaman's explaining here is that yeah, um, things cannot explain their own existence or their own. Um, attributes like in other words they can't explain how it is that they do what they do and those events they're not just isolated either they actually um they occur with a certain um you know regularity and that's why we speak of laws of the universe right? you know we we talk of a strong force you know um right so the force um you know the the event in which three quarks bind to form a proton or a neutron we talk of the strong force um because that binding occurs um, now, if those things cannot ex themselves explain why it is that they do that, you know, why is it that when three quarks come within a certain distance of one another, they sort of stay, right? They bind. They don't touch, but they just stay, right? There's a certain gap, and they just stay there, right? And then they exhibit a certain charge, which is to say that um, they interact with other quarks in certain ways. Um, right? well, I can imagine another universe where that doesn't happen. You know, that needs to be explained, okay? So these things cannot explain themselves why that happens. Um, and uh, so, right, what this is pointing to, right, what this is pointing to is that, um, well, well, what we're asking here, rather, is that look, what kind of attributes are required to explain that, right? Um, you know, uh, so I've already said that. 
to create something from nothing, it's going to require infinite power. There's straight away the divine name of Qadir manifested. Right? So the point here is that any given thing, right, certainly the human being who manifests like, e- e- even just like outwardly, at least 70 divine names, you know, right? Hay and Qayyum and Razak and Rahman and Rahim and, uh, you know, Sami' and Basir and so on and so on, right? Countless divine names, countless divine names are manifested in the human being. But I'm just keeping things simple here. Even just the humble quark or the humble electron manifests divine names like, um, you know, Qadir uh, and Khalik, uh, um, uh, you know, Musawwir, um, uh, uh, Bari, and so on, right? You know, in the order that it manifests, for example, yeah, you know, Allah's order and so on, you know, in the form that it has, yeah, Allah's giver of form, Al-Musawwir, and so on and so on. Every single thing, right, is manifesting divine names. Like, when you read the book of the universe carefully, when you look at individual entities, you see any given thing is manifesting certain names, certain attributes that are particular only to Allah, right? So there... Right? You can look at that one thing and you can say, ah, okay, there's my Lord. Right? There, there is the manifestation of my Lord's names and attributes. Right? And from that, you, know, you can know of Al-Ahad. That's one. Right? Next thing, right? now let's zoom out and let's now look at the multiplicity of beings. Okay? There isn't just one quark. Okay? Um, there are countless quarks. Right? There are trillions and trillions of quarks. Just as the individual quark right, is pointing to Allah's oneness through, in the way that I just described by manifesting those names, right, so too right, a multiplicity of beings sharing certain commonalities, right, having certain things in common, right, that's pointing to Allah as a being of unity. Right? Why is that the case? Right? Well, think about this. If a number of entities right, have certain commonalities, the easiest way to, like, what's the easiest way to explain that? By just saying that, well, the reason why they have the commonalities, because, see, the commonalities require explanation. Right? It can't just be, um, you know, uh, we're not going to put that down to blind chance. Right? Every single quark just so happening to have the same mass. <laughs> Every single photon of light just so happening to travel at the same speed. Okay. We're not going to put that down to chance, are we? <laughs> you know, the odds against that um, are astronomical. Okay. Um, Seeing as though those commonalities need to be explained, um, the easiest way to explain that now, right? We need to explain it. The easiest way to explain it is to say, well, the reason why they have these things in common is that they have the same cause. Uh, if I say they have the same cause, then I can easily explain why it is they have the commonalities. But now, if I try to say that, no, no, they've got, um, there are a multiplicity of causes responsible for it, now you've got a whole bunch of other things to explain, right? How is it that these causes um, got together and you know, agreed upon uh, giving these things all the same attributes. Seems though, let's pretend maybe every quark has been created by a different entity. <laughs> then why did they? Why did they all have the same commonalities? Right? You see, you know, it becomes quite ludicrous. So now you can look at any given set of beings, any given set of beings. Like look at the set of human beings. Okay. In their commonalities, right? You'll be able to point to the unity of their cause. Okay. Their cause is. One rather than more than one being, right? Allah is Wahid, right? So everything, right, can be viewed in that same way. Uh, the set of quarks, the set of electrons, the set of human beings. Um, look, you know, every human being, look, has a, to the extent that we're still alive, right, we have a digestive system, for example, or a circulatory system. Right? Now, like, again, right, 
that my having that circulatory system okay, that cannot be explained other than by pointing to al-ahad, right? unless I um, point to a being that has the names and attributes that Allah does, I'm not going to be able to explain um, my ability to digest even a single molecule of water. You know? um, now, you can try, if you like, to explain it in virtue of um, um, evolutionary processes and so on, um, but the problem, as we've discussed before, the problem with that is that those processes themselves stand in need of explanation. Because again, what do those processes consist in? Um, while you've just got certain um, particles and certain groups of particles that move in certain orderly ways, certain extremely complex orderly ways, right? And that in itself needs explanation, yeah? Because, like, how does the neo-Darwinian paradigm uh, operate, yeah? yeah? Just by quick way of refresher, right? The neo-Darwinian paradigm says what? Um, first, you've got um, a, uh, you know, like a, an RNA molecule, something along those lines, something that carries a genetic code. Yeah, you've got that. Um, that is a self-replicating entity. <laughs> it it self-replicates. Every now and again, there's a, a mistake, an error in that copying process. Every now and again, some of those mistakes are fortuitous. Right? Um, uh, yeah, you know, they confer upon that organism or that uh, molecule, rather, uh, a selective advantage. They make it more fit to self-replicate, let's say, and therefore that um, uh, that, that um, change, that mutation, is retained. Right? It's selected by nature. Yeah, that's the general story, right? Well, the problem is that. Um, how on earth is it that you explain how it is that trillions and trillions of quarks and electrons all line up in just the right ways to form an RNA molecule? And how is it that those uh, unconscious, un non-living, unconscious, unintelligent, totally lacking in knowledge, right? Those deaf, dumb and blind quarks and electrons, how is it that they uh, move in just the right ways to manifest that phenomenon that we refer to as self-replication? Right? And then, indeed, how is it that, um, you know, looking now at the cell, let's say, you know, the cell of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a plant or a human being, right? um, what happens, you know, you've got these certain little molecular machines that come along, they're able to read how it is that DNA base pairs are, are ordered, right? Uh, they read the ordering of DNA base pairs uh, on that, on the basis of reading that, on the basis of somehow detecting that, um, they gather amino acids, right? String them together in just the right way to form a protein, and then thanks to that, you end up with limbs and you know um, organs and so on, right? All of these entities are lifeless, unconscious, unintelligent. You know, um, well, if they're alive, I mean, maybe they're alive in a certain biological sense, but certainly they're unconscious they're, and they're unintelligent. They don't have any knowledge. Um, they don't have the attributes that you require to bring about that sort of effect. Okay. Um, remember, like we can't, we still to this day cannot explain. There is no explanation in science or philosophy for why it is that three quarks manage to bind to form a proton or a neutron. What we have is a uh, a description of the occurrence of that. We certainly have a description, right? Uh, we have a descriptive law, right? We have the strong force, right? Uh, and even calling it that, you know, giving it that name is quite strategic. Right? It's quite strategic. Bedouzman refers to it as a naming strategy, you know? Call something a force and it brings to mind an ability to do something, <laughs> okay? But it's not really a force, right? The law does not really describe force what it describes is what we in fact happen like to explain things in virtue like, like to point to a law as the cause of something is really just to restate the problem 
No, the problem is how is it that lifeless, unconscious, unintelligent entities can uh, manifest order? How can they manifest order? Uh, you know, to point to a law is just to restate that problem, right? Because the law is just a description of that. Right? A law describes that um, there's particles moving in certain orderly, regular ways. Okay, so you know, um, given all of that. Nothing can explain my circulatory or my respiratory or my, um, you know, digestive system or, you know, my ability to see and so on. Nothing can explain that other than a, an entity, right, a being with the right names and attributes. Okay. So, again, everything is pointing to Al-Ahad when considered in isolation. But then when you zoom out and you consider the totality of beings and, and you know, the multiplicity of beings, sets of beings, and their commonalities, you see that everything is pointing to um, one cause, right? One entity as their cause rather than a multiplicity, right? And, and you know, uh, when we consider each individual being, we can identify that cause too, you know? Uh, yeah, go on, sorry. I have a few, a few questions. Yeah, yeah, please. So, so you said, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you spoke about how uh, one, of the, one of the indicators of God's uh, oneness forget which oneness it was, but I think it was the, the one the oneness of his attributes. Is that when okay. you look at for example Wahidia, yeah. Wahidia, yeah. Uh, one human being has certain properties yeah. that characterize the next human being, that characterize the next yeah, human being yeah. and so on and so forth. And we sort of see all these human beings have uh, a set uh, could we call it a nature? Uh, if we understand nature here, I, I had. I, I guess so, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Nature here, a way that they are, a way that they uh, they exhibit certain things regularly, you know. Right. Yeah. Would, what do you think about this definition? A nature as an internally consistent, uh, comprehensive description of a set of behaviors across all time and space. Um, even if the the entity did not. Um, always exhibit that, like across all time and space. If it didn't even always, like, uh, you, look, look um, you know, um, the metaphysicians, they speak of, you know, um, temporal index laws, you know. So, like, something is still a law, um, you know, uh, even if there's a point in time at which it stops and then later restarts and so on. Yeah. So, but for that um, little that, change, that, yeah, yeah, that's right. fine, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so, so, <clears throat> so then would we say, for example, that. Uh, you know, you know, like we used to read Kripke, like so Kripke says that you know, okay, uh, sometimes the natures of things mm -hmm. might not be knowable to us, yeah, uh, a priori, right? And 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 in fact, okay. you might just sure, see a lot of sure. natures we only know a posteriori. And he gives the example uh, of yep. water. He says yep. water, the nature of water is H two O. And so you know, so like so for example, prior to us discovering the chemical constitution, mm -hmm. and this yeah. is like, we can debate whether you know that's what. I guess pins, as it were, the nature mm -hmm. of water. But uh, you know, uh, there's. Uh, I think it was Putnam who had that twin Earth uh, mm -hmm. hypothesis. Mm -hmm. He said, "Imagine a, if, I, if I'm recounting it correctly, a planet where there's a liquid. It yeah. flows. It's clear. People. Yeah. You know, it can be drunk and so on and so forth. But it doesn't have this mm -hmm. uh, constitution of H two O. And uh, can should we call that water?" Yep. Uh, and uh, so the debate would be, okay, mm. what exactly uh, will pin our language? Will yeah, it be yeah. those sort of phenomenological, you know, uh, uh, qualities that we, uh, you know, see it having yeah. prior to our chemical uh, uh, discovery of it? Or is it, as it were, the chemical discovery of it? Because mm -hmm. uh, we can say that, you know, God could have created a world mm -hmm. uh, where 
in that world, there is something called water, mm-hmm. and it flows, and it's drinkable, etc., sure. etc., yeah. et except, uh, but it's not H2O. Okay. Right? Yeah, am I yeah. right in saying that? That it's a, sure, it's, sure, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a world in which, uh, or, or do, we say something, do we say something along the lines of, in any possible world that God created, mm-hmm. uh, if uh, the thing that he created was, you know, if, if it had all those qualities, yeah. Uh, but we're not just talking about the qualities that pertain to it, mm-hmm. but we can talk about the ways in which that thing relates to other things. So, for sure, example, sure. there's us and then there's water, mm-hmm. and then there's the there's the particular relation of us being able to drink water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that you know is going to be uh, uh, explicated in, in, in like you know somebody who studied the human body and say this is how water you know goes. Mm-hmm. This is how water you know yep, I- interacts yep. with this part of the body and that part of the body, and they can they can give us a whole story yep, right, yep, uh, yep, uh, yep. about that and. So I guess my uh, my question is like you know when we talk about uh, these natures that yeah. things could have, mm-hmm. there's a few questions here. I think one is the question as to uh, you know how we one is how we know the natures of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is that you know when we speak of something having a nature, that uh, uh, and I guess here a thought experiment would be useful. Like if we uh, if we saw something, say you and I encountered some new thing that yeah, we've never yeah. seen before, we were you know, yeah. astronauts on some planet, yep, yep. and we see some new substance that has never been seen before, yep. and we decided to call it some name. Let's say we call it fire, right? Mm-hmm. This is the first time we've seen this mm-hmm. thing called fire. It's this glowing thing, and it's hot, and so on, and we call it fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we never see that thing demonstrating those same qualities ever again. Mm-hmm. We would never be able to identify that thing as, as okay, fire again, sure, right? Sure, like yeah. it's a, it's yeah. a, so there's a sense in which the thing possessing, uh, as it were, this, you know, and again, yeah, it's a bit difficult mm. to fully ask because mm-hmm. when we say, you know, uh, because we, we we already know, like empirically, that there's such things as, you know, I guess uh, I could see a certain kind of fire, then I could yeah. see another kind of fire. Yeah, yeah. Let's say, you know, the, the blue flame, or I think it's uh, uh, maybe somebody who would know more about mm-hmm. that, but let's say there's a bond, raging bonfire. And then there's like, you know, the blue flame that you turn on mm-hmm. the gas and maybe that doesn't burn you or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that is the chemistry. And that's fire. Yep. We're going to call that fire. Uh, and so what was my question here? <laughs> Can I, maybe while, yeah, while you're thinking about, let me just yeah, yeah. interject it's at this point. Like there's just one little thing that I should point out. Like, yeah. Don't forget that Kripke's um, comments, like what they are is that they are in part like um, they're a theory about naming. Okay, so that like it's it's something um, uh, it pertains to the philosophy of language. Right. Okay, so yeah, that's yeah, often um, yeah that's often overlooked. Mm. So what he's saying is that um, well part of what he's saying is that um, the name of some the name of something as water um, it depends on this like if something is like let's let's pretend that we first see water as you described and um, we give it uh, the name water. On one theory of naming, right, um, that sets for all possible worlds its name. Okay, um, it's a thing's name is set for all possible worlds by its initial baptism. Okay, its initial naming ceremony. Right. All right. Um, so yeah, like it's not really, um, you know, metaphysically speaking. So we're talking about metaphysical matters here. You know, um, it doesn't really, you know, matter to us what one chooses to name something. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like you could name it. Um, you know, we could be a p- people without language, let's say, you know. Um, um, yeah, you know, the reality is that the thing, the phenomenon is there. There's a phenomenon 
Now, now it does so happen that Allah has given us language and a whole range of abilities with which we're able to, um, you know, name this thing and observe its characteristics and so on. And that's not, you know, by any means, um, you know, by chance. You know, he's given us those capabilities because he wants us to know those things, because he wants us to know him through those things. You know, um, so it's no coincidence that we have these, you know, um, but let's pretend that, you know, we didn't exist or, you know, we didn't have, let's say there were no intelligent beings yet on this planet. Um, that doesn't mean that that phenomenon is not going to exist. It's just that there's not going to be anyone there to observe it yet. You know, well, you know, no one other than Allah anyway, you know. Um, so, yeah, what name a thing has isn't, you know, that's um, relevant. I, I, I don't think um, the real issue is that. There's the thing, right? There's fire, right? Um, what is it composed of? Ultimately, it's composed of entities that lack the attributes to explain that phenomenon. Okay? Um, so, sure, if we didn't have certain abilities, we would not be able to um, conceive of that thing in those terms. You know, we wouldn't be able to identify that, hey, look, that thing can't explain itself at points Allah. Sure, we wouldn't be able to do that if we don't, you know. Um, but we do have those attributes and therefore we can, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, there isn't anything amiss there. You know, there, there isn't anything amiss. Um, um, I want to say this other thing, like, you know, the last thing I'll say, you know, and I'll come back to any other questions that you've, um, you others have. Um, like... One thing that Bedouzman says that's like, you know, like helpful, you know, to understand some of this is, um, like, here's the thing, right? Like, here's one thing that points to unity, right? Um, look now, right? Um, here, I open this, right? Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. Right, what do we got here? We've got molecules of water, right? Now, these aren't part of me, right? <laughs> they came from wherever they came from, right? They came from the clouds, or the, wherever they came from. Right? Bismillah. <laughs> All right, there you go. They're now part of me. They're one with my body. Okay. Yeah, my body is this complex factory. Right? It's this complex set of systems. Right? It is the most complex thing that we know of in this universe. Okay. Um, the, mole the, the death, dumb, blind, unconscious, unintelligent particles of that water, right? Those molecules or those particles, right? they're somehow able to enter my body. And they're somehow able to participate in all, in, in, in uh, maybe not all, but at least, you know, a broad set of the um, a complex, uh, you know, processes that are going on in my body. Right? Similarly, right, look there, there comes a photon, you can't see it. <laughs> there comes a photon, right? it enters my eye. Right? Again, it becomes part of me. Right? Yet my brain and my, you know, um, what is it, the oculatory system, or is that even a word, you know, um, my eye and its systems, you know, my brain, my nervous system, these are complex, complex phenomena. So you've got a whole bunch of particles that are all acting together, right, in very, very complex ways, and then these other little particles come, and they join in, and they start working together with them. <laughs> right, now, again, I ask you, right, I ask anyone here, guys, go tomorrow to um, uh, um, go to Google, all right? Well, so you're a data scientist, right? But you don't, you're not a Google, I take it. All right? Go over to America and go to Google and go to their latest project, right? their latest, most complex, their most wondrous project, and just go and join in, right? Just go and 
grab a seat at the table and be become a full contributor to that, right? Um, uh, can you do that? Right. Uh, can I do that? Like I uh, haven't, you know, I've learned, um, uh, I've done the first three modules on uh, free code camp, right? Can I go and do that? Hmm. Right. And yeah, I'm an intelligent being, at least partly anyway. All right. How do these deaf, dumb, blind, unconscious, unintelligent particles go and participate in these very, very complex um, processes? Well, if I say that all of these particles are being um, commanded, controlled, whatever word you want to use, if they're all being directed, right, with the com command of kun for your kun, right, be and it is, Allah tells that phenomenon, be and it is, right, if I say that there's a being who gives a command like that, if I say that there's a being who's moving each of those particles every moment that they move, then it's easily explained, right, but Dusaman says that things are explained in that way with such facility that it's at the point of necessity, right, Right. It's so easy to explain it that way um, that you're forced to explain it that way. And any other way of trying to explain it um, fails. Okay. Um, man, I've been at Melbourne Uni for, I don't know, like 10 years or so now, like in one, maybe the most secular, one of the most secular uh, philosophy departments in the world, right? There isn't even a philosophy of religion in class. Uh, it's a secular institution. Uh, and I've heard, sorry, God, trying to eat this minute at the same time. Um, I've heard every, um, you know, every kind of fanciful, um, you know, response or rebuttal, uh, you know, possible, okay? Um, they all fail, right? When you hear the desperation of the counter-arguments, you see that, wow, you know, like these guys are getting real desperate, you know, like, um, you know, maybe what it is, guys, here, maybe, right? Uh, you, don't know, you don't need God to explain how that party comes and joins in in the complex systems in your body. Right? It might be that we live in, a, in an infinite multiverse of universes. Right? And you know, there are an infinite number of universes. The overwhelming majority of them are totally disordered. Right? They're a disorderly bunch. So just by chance, it's quite reasonable to expect that there will be one universe right? where there are beings you know, like this and phenomena like that, complexity and order like that. You know? um, well, the problem with that is that the multiverse itself is an orderly and <laughs> very complex system, you know. Um, you know, though, that, that's the sort of desperation. Or, when they get really desperate, they'll just say, no, 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 things don't need an explanation. <laughs> right? They just throw out that, they just um, deny the principle of sufficient reason, you know, um, which leads to scepticism. You know, which leads to, uh, you know, as, as Alexander Proust has, you know, pointed out, it... it, it like, normally, like, how do you get to scepticism? Scepticism being the view that you can't have knowledge, okay? We can't know anything, right? Okay. Whether about the world or whether about whatever, okay? Uh, there are different sorts, okay? Um, well, normally how scepticism is motivated is by pointing to, um, like, an evil demon or someone, right? Like, someone who's deceiving you. You know, you know like... Um, um, the world looks like this, but it could be that the world isn't really like this, and what, rather what I am is I'm a brain in a vat. Or if you've seen The Matrix, you know how um, Neo, right, is in uh, a pod. He's in this fluid-filled pod, and there are all these, like, wires attached to him, and um, they're making it seem to him like, you know, he's in a dojo and he's doing martial arts with, you know, um, the other guy, right, whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, so there's usually a deceiver, right, to point to, right, to explain why it is that, you know, you don't really know what you know because you can't rule out that you're being deceived by, you know, an evil deceiver, okay? Um, well, if things don't need an explanation, well then, 
I can assert this, right? Um, the world is not the way that it really seems, right? The world isn't the way it is. All the truths that you think are true are, in fact, false. Why? No, no, no explanation, right? There is no explanation for why it is that the world is actually different to how it seems. Right? You could run a line like that. You could run an argument like that. Uh, Bruce has pointed out. Um, so, yeah, you know, like... Um, the principle of sufficient truth, like it expresses a necessary truth, right? It's necessarily true. Right? Contingent phenomena, like if, if something didn't have to exist or it didn't have to be the way that it is, right? then it needs an explanation for why it does exist or why it is the way, it, why, why it does manifest um, whatever attributes it has, okay? Um, that is just like, uh, you know, a metaphysical first principle. Uh, well confirmed, you know, and we live by it. You know, in our daily lives, we live by this. Right, we live by this. Like otherwise, go to court. Right? Let's 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 pretend. Right? Sorry if I've, if you heard this example a hundred times, you know. But right, um, let's pretend. Right, I've committed the crime. I've committed a crime. Um, the the camera sort. Uh, the, 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 um, I've, I've been recorded by a camera. Um, there are a room full of witnesses. My fingerprints are on the weapon. Um, uh, I made admission to the police after being arrested. And so on and so on, right? There's all the evidence in the world that's pretend, you know? Um, and then what happens? Um, I go to court uh, and I say, Your Worship, sure, all the evidence is stacked up against me, um, but it wasn't me. So what's the judge going to say? Okay, well, then how do you explain all the evidence then? No, no, uh, things don't need an explanation. Okay, would I win that case? Yeah, so we see that in other important contexts, right? Like, is, is, is that an important context? Like, my, my freedom is at stake, yeah? Uh, or justice is at stake. You know, the enforcement of law, the administration of justice is at stake. These are important contexts, right? So in other important contexts, see, we don't reason in that way, okay? So why reason in that way um, in the philosophical context? Um, yeah, you know. So anyway, like long story short, guys, is that every single counter argument is is desperate and fails. You know, um, yeah, you do really need to get quite desperate and quite you know radical, you know, just to even try to offer something in response to what's being said here. You know, that's the harsh reality. You know, um, and 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 last thing I'll say is this: like, if there was a better proof. Like, this is the Qur'anic way, guys. This is the Qur'anic way. Like, the Qur'anic way of proving Allah's existence and his unity um, is like this, is by pointing to phenomena and the fact that they can't themselves explain how it is that they do what they do or how it is that they exist, right? um, and, you know, and thereby inferring Allah, right? That's Bedizman's methodology here. It's the Qur'anic method. If there was a better, uh, if there was a more surefire way, a right? uh, more logically airtight way, right? a better way, then of course Allah would have chosen that. You know? um, this is the optimum way. This is the best way. Um, and we could, again, like um, why we don't tend to take this particular path, like you know, in among you know educated Muslims, let's say, right? You know, among educated Muslims, well, why do we instead um, reach for let's say the kalam cosmological argument or the contingency argument and so on? You know, which are useful, you know, and that. But the problem is that they only ever can point to one particular attribute of Allah. You know, like the kalam cosmological argument shows that there's a creator. 
you know, uh, or like a cause of the universe. Um, the contingency argument proves that there has to be a being with the um, attribute of necessary existence. So points points to al-wajibul wujud. So they're all deficient in that sense, right? This particular argument, its advantage is that it points to all of the divine names and attributes. It provides a path to knowing Allah with all of His names and attributes. Okay, and if you can do that, if you can do that, then you can come to know Allah in the most full-bodied way. You know, it's possible for a finite being. Um, yeah, you know, and, and if you don't, if you fail to do so, then again, you're going to be that person who either attributes things to yourself. Hey, I'm the one who, um, you know, created this. It's thanks to my efforts that I achieved this and did that um, and so on. So you're either going to end up worshipping yourself, you know, congratulating yourself, applauding yourself, in other words, for every little thing, or you're going to applaud others, right? You're going to be like, I saw on the internet the other day, there was some influencer turned up somewhere, and all I saw was this image, right, with like a, a sea of people, and they're all doing this. Hang on, I can only, I can't do, do it justice with my words. All I saw is just this, like a sea of people like that. Oh, just a sea of people just desperate to capture an image of someone famous for nothing other than, I think, either taking your clothes off or being an influencer or whatever, right? Um, so you're either going to be someone like that who just worships people, uh, other finite beings that are not deserving of your worship, you know, or you're going to worship nature and physical causes and things like that, which, as we've discussed, are impotent. They're impotent, you know, they're, they're, they're unable to explain how it is that they do what they do due to lacking certain attributes. Yeah, you know, so that's the whole uh, point here, guys. Yeah, yeah, go on. So there's the Kalam argument, yeah, I refer to it as Bedouzaman's Quranic argument, right? Um, but yeah, it's how do I, yeah, how else would one describe it, you know, like, I guess it's related to, you know, uh, what they would have referred to as like an argument from order, you know, um, but that is to sort of downplay it too much, like, there isn't merely order to be explained in the universe, like, um, yeah, certainly there's order, but that order manifests in um, countless ways, and that's relevant, you know, like, for, like, like, could I do this? Could I just look at a body and say, hey, there's nothing to be explained in that body other than the fact that it's orderly, you know, in other words, it, it it acts regularly in accordance with a certain pattern, certain system, right? Then I wouldn't be giving justice to the fact that, for example, it can circulate blood, right? Um, you know, that it can um, respirate, that it can digest, and, you know, a high-level phenomena like that. So, sure, at bottom, yeah, you know, things manifest order, but then there are, you know, a high-level sort of, um, you know, uh, phenomena that need to be accounted for, you know? Um, yeah, so... You know, yeah, that's why I hesitate to refer to it as, you know, an argument from order. But it's related to that, I guess. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And and this this sort of argument, like, it was also, like, um, you know, that even in the Christian world, you know, um, like William Paley and so on, you know, they used to, you know, look to it. But what, what's happened is that, like, as the Western world learnt more and more about the way the world wor works and they began to describe things via, um, you know, laws of you know varying levels of generality you know whether fundamental laws or higher level laws like laws of chemistry uh, biological laws you know, laws of evolution right? as they began to learn about the patterns in the universe um, they began to think that you know like for example William Paley's um you know watchmaker you know analogy or argument that, that didn't work and so on um, but yeah Actually, all of those phenomena, you know, all of those laws and all of those regularities, they themselves stand in need of explanation. 
you know. So it was actually wrong to say that Paley was wrong, you know. But anyway, yeah. Anything else, guys? Uh, anything? Anything to contribute from you guys? Or? Yeah, you know. So I guess by way of summary, you know, what we've done is that um, we've considered like Allah's name of Fard, him as Ahad and Wahid, um, and you know, uh, you know, him as being one in his essence, you know, unique in his essence and unique in his names and attributes. Like nobody else has his names and attributes, nobody else has his essence. And Allah shows this in the universe. He shows us that he is a being of oneness and unity in the universe in the ways that I've uh, described. Yeah. Um, yeah, go on. Please. So, uh, difference between essence and names and attributes? Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, traditionally, like our scholars have spoken of Allah um, in this way, you know. Thanks for joining us, brother. Salaam alaikum. Uh, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you here. So, like, traditionally, like, they've spoken of Allah as having, like, a certain mahiya, like, a certain essence. Like, what is something's essence? It's what, like, you are deep down, like, you know, um, like, what are you deep down? You're a ruh, right? You're a ruh, right? You've got this spirit, right? What is the spirit? Um, yeah, well, we spoke about it last week, you know, it's, it's, it's a divine command that has been clothed in external existence, as he, as he describes it. Anyway, um, so you have a ruh, which is actually quite mysterious, right? We actually, we don't know much about it because we don't really understand the nature of consciousness nor the nature of life and so on, but, you know, we know something of it at least, you know? Like you sense that you exist, don't you? You sense that you're alive and conscious uh, and able to engage in cognition and so on. Um, so anyway, similar to that, like now Allah too has an essence, right? But that essence, it's um, at the moment quite unknowable, you know? Maybe it's forever unknowable. Like uh, it is the essence of an infinite being, an absolute being. And we finite beings, we don't know the essence, Right? And we're asked not to try to know it, but not to try to say what it is, because what we're going to do, like the way the human mind works, it tries to picture things. Right? So what you're going to do, you're going to necessarily limit it. You're going to think of it you know, as something situated either you know, at a certain time or place, or in some way you're going to limit it. Right? So that's the divine essence. Right? It's some, some, something absolute. It's something infinite you know, uh, in the qualitative sense. Um, it is, yeah, it, it's nature, it's what it's like, you know, like it is the sort of, Allah is the kind of being who is alive, who has seeing and hearing and knowing um, and so on and so on and all that, he has mercy and love and compassion and, and all the names and attributes, you know, um, yeah, yeah, so that's the difference, you know, um, and, 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 like someone's going to say now, like I'm imagining now, an objector here now, you know, say, well, isn't that anthropocentric or anthropomorphic? You're, you're making, you're looking at yourself and you're, you know, you're imagining like, a, you know, um, God in your own image, you know. Um, rather, the opposite is true. Rather, what, what has happened is that Allah wants to make himself known, right? That's, as we've discussed in the past, why Allah has created is to make himself known to us in part, okay? Partly he, uh, you know, enjoys his own beauty himself so hence he manifests his names and attributes but also he creates other conscious and living beings to also experience his beauty so you know the universe and we in it have been constructed on the basis of love and mercy right um uh you know so yeah like allah has um wants to he's created so that he, uh, he, he can be known therefore he creates us in his image, like in the sense that he gives us certain um, attributes, certain capabilities through which we're able to know him. Like, for example, um, thanks to having certain abilities, I'm able to, for example, engage in an act of charity. Now, 
through having that ability, I'm able to have an experiential knowledge, not merely some, you know, you know, scholarly or you know, intellectual knowledge, um, not some merely mere propositional knowledge, but rather an experience of um, generosity. I'm able to know via experience Allah's name of Kareem, or at least something of that name. You know, I'm able to at least, yeah, take a step in that direction at least. You know. Um, and so on. So, yeah, there's actually a very good explanation for why it is that Allah has attributes that seem to be similar to ours. It's just that Allah has created us in His image, as the Christians put it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I might stop the recording, guys, um, and we can continue our conversation. Well, I've gone somewhat longer than usual. Well, sorry about that. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Thanks for joining us, uh, anyone who has listened. Um, yeah, I'll end the recording there. Um.